2: help for them to get our head, but they're probably not the questions that you want answered, so. Yeah, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain.
0: Let's get started.
3: Welcome to The Bloodline with LLS. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette.
2: Thank you so much for joining us on this episode.
3: Today, we will be joined by Kimberly Alexander, who is a cancer advocate, speaker, and radio personality. She became involved with the blood cancer community after her husband, NFL linebacker, Elijah Alexander, was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. Despite losing him in 2010, she has chosen to honor his memory by helping patients and caregivers dealing with the cancer diagnosis, as well as fundraising to help find cures. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode.
1: Thank you for having
3: me. Of course. So how would you describe your life prior to your husband's, um, diagnosis? I know that he was the, he was, he played for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Denver Broncos, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Oakland Raiders. So I can assume that you were very busy, but in your own words, how would you describe your life prior to that?
1: Yeah, I, I was very, very busy. I could start a, a moving company, um, they could <laughs> all of the traveling that we had to do because of the NFL. But, you know, honestly, to me, in hindsight, I, I think it was a little storybook. You know what I mean? It was very um magical. It was exciting to be married to Eli and watching him live out his dream of playing in the NFL. I was so young. Um I didn't quite understand the magnitude of it at the time. And so, you know, I was just kind of along for the ride. I loved him. We got married. We had our children. And it was just a matter of us hopping from city to city based on wherever he was playing for the year and um and and even when it came time to you know for him to decide whether or not he wanted to retire or keep playing you know unlike a lot of football players Elijah didn't have any issues with walking away from football he was just kind of tired of it he was tired of two-a-days he was tired of all the back and forth and so he left the game on his own terms which is kind of unheard of. Quite often, most people end up leaving football because of an injury. And so because of that, um, transitioning away from it was relatively peaceful. He ended up finding uh, some other kind of career that he wanted to get involved in. He became an entrepreneur and started a couple of companies. And we were just kind of moving along, doing our thing, raising our boys. And then our whole world was turned upside down when he was
3: diagnosed with cancer. A lot of people will say, I had hip pain, I had back pain. We had a young adult who ran a marathon and then after the marathon had a hip pain and just kind of attributed his pain to his marathon. And it wasn't until he went in that they found um, a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. So how is it for for Eli? Well, it was
1: similar, but it wasn't back pain. He had pain in his feet, which I guess isn't really common. But you know, it was interesting. He'd been going to doctors um, during his early retirement, trying to figure out what was causing the pain in his feet. And they kept telling him, you know, you played football. You played football for years. So of course your feet are going to hurt. And part of me also wonders if, you know, being an athlete, you're kind of expected to suck it up quite often. You know, they don't really complain about a lot of pain. They tend to overlook a lot of things that would probably typically affect most people. So it would not surprise me if he did have some kind of back pain and he just kind of ignored it just because he was so used to ignoring when he was not feeling comfortable. But it was the pain in his feet that really stood out the most. And oddly enough, it wasn't even a a doctor in the United States that ended up figuring out something was wrong with him. And um, to me, that will always be one of the more interesting parts of our story because i I wonder how much sooner would it have been caught if someone had figured it out and was he young when he was diagnosed He was Elijah was diagnosed with uh, stage three b multiple myeloma at the age of thirty five wow yeah wow. yeah it's it's awesome.
2: typically not the first thing they look for in a thirty five year old especially somebody who's so physically active
1: yeah, and from what I'd learned about myeloma after the fact, I heard that it was a a typically a slow-progressing cancer. So part of me will always wonder if he had it while he played football because by the time they caught it, he was in really, really bad shape.
2: It's interesting because some people are diagnosed with smoldering myeloma, which is um, a very low-grade and may not need treatment right when it's diagnosed, but people do have it. And since he was diagnosed so young and he was so fit, Mm -hmm. And you said this wasn't just a typical diagnosis where they found something in his
1: blood counts or because a typical doctor didn't find it. He was actually um, basically an organ failure by the time they caught it. And so even before he could start chemotherapy, he had to undergo plasmapheresis for them to get his kidneys back healthy because they were shutting down. So he was in bad shape. We could have lost him then that was in uh 2005. And you must remember that day like it was yesterday. Oh, I I think about it often. Um, you know, especially because you know, we live in the same home. I end up passing by uh the same hospital that I took him to when he originally got sick. And so I relive it a lot to be very honest with you, but you know, I think I take comfort in knowing that there have been a lot of advancements made when it comes to myeloma uh, from the time that Elijah was originally diagnosed. And, you know, it's interesting to me how, as much as I didn't know anything about myeloma at the time, with me talking about it all the time, I have a lot of people that reach out to me now. Um, I just had a friend reach out to me last week because she has a a cousin in uh, in South Florida that was recently diagnosed at the age of 36. And so I'm glad that me being so vocal and and transparent about what our family went through, lets people know that they can talk to me about it, and I feel like it ends up making me not feel like our experience was in vain. You know, of course, it did not turn out the way that I wish it had. I mean, to be very honest with you, in a perfect world, I would love to not have anything to do with LLS and have anything. <laughs> to I would have been perfectly okay not ever having experienced this, but I feel like because we did and the way that we did, there has to be a reason. And if that reason is for me to help other people so that, you know, when they hear the words multiple myeloma, they don't feel as completely sucker punched as I was. I mean, it was horrible. And everything I read about myeloma at that time was horrible. You know, if you Googled it in 2005, you definitely didn't see all the positive things that you see now. It's a whole different ball game. You're right, just in the last
2: five years itself, there's been so much happening with myeloma. Actually, the last 10 years, really. And yeah, our our jobs here, Alicia and I, our job is to get rid of our jobs. So, um,
3: you know, <laughs> yeah, we don't need to exist, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the one time having no job will be completely fine. Yeah. Yeah. True.
2: Kimberly, thank you so much for talking about your experience. Because we're getting to know more and more people that were diagnosed so early, um, which is so out of the norm. And we're getting to know them, and the biggest thing is feeling so alone, feeling like, you know, I'm I'm a case study for my doctor because nobody's diagnosed at this time. Young adults who were diagnosed that um, people – the doctors had to deal with fertility issues, and they never had to deal with that before because – People were in their sixties and seventies getting diagnosed, so thank you so much, just because you know people need to know that they're not alone out there
1: yeah no, i I agree i mean i just it was horrible when he was first diagnosed, and it just i don't know it, it, it there there weren't a whole lot of resources for us at the time. I feel like there was a a support group here locally, but they always met on weekends and we couldn't really get involved on weekends because we had little kids and Eli was coaching all of our son's teams. And so, you know, cancer did not really fit into our plans. And so, you know, it was one of those things where we had to figure out how to make sure that we kept him healthy and try to keep things as normal as possible for him and keep things as normal as possible for our boys at the time they were in elementary school. And as the caregiver, You know, there's no handbook for that. You know, nobody really anticipates that coming, Um, and I just kind of looked at it like, you know, I'm the mom, I'm the wife, I have to take care of everyone, and I just wanted to make sure that I did whatever was best to keep things as peaceful as possible for our children while making sure Eli received the treatment that he needed. You know, and it was always with the hopes that you know, that there would be a cure found. And even if there wasn't a cure found, that we could keep him alive as long as possible.
3: As a mother, how did you have that conversation with your children?
1: I think uh, if I remember correctly, I kept it pretty basic. You know, I did recognize that they were in elementary school. And, you know, at that age, there's only so much you can process. And I didn't, I didn't really want them to worry. There were times when, I was a little bit more transparent with them as far as the, the gravity of what their dad was dealing with. It was necessary to be that transparent at times when they would know that he was in the hospital or or if he wasn't feeling well and he couldn't get out of the bed. You know, sometimes it was unavoidable. But for the most part, I really tried to keep life peaceful for them, because to me, it was so unfair. You know what I mean? It was so unfair for their dad to end up with this rare cancer. We didn't plan on it. You know, in our minds, we were thinking, okay, he's going to retire from football and we'll be able to go home and and, and live great doing whatever it is we want to do moving forward. And um, multiple myeloma had different plans for us. And so when all of that changed, it was just a matter of me trying to just maintain normalcy. I mean, that was always actually one of the things that Eli complained about too you know he's like some days i just wish i could wake up and feel normal and and myeloma changed that for us so it was this, it was like a constant battle to try to to hang on to any semblance of of normalcy just anything
3: in one of your interviews you mentioned that you have to show your boys that when something horrible like this happens you can get through it you when you guys got the diagnosis, where did you go to find, you said there weren't many resources, but when you did find the resources, where did you, where did you end up getting most of your help from?
1: Google. I mean, to be very honest with you, I just Googled it and a few things popped up and I paid attention to those things. But I also was very, very, God bless his oncologist's heart. I was very much in his face a lot. And he was incredible because his mom had had myeloma. And so I felt very comfortable with Elijah seeing him. You know, at the time, a lot of people talked about, oh, well, you need to go to MD Anderson. You need to go to Arkansas. But again, we had little kids. We had a life here. We had, um, you know, our children were in school. And I think to a certain extent, Elijah wanted to maintain a sense of normalcy and you know, he really enjoyed coaching our boys' teams. He enjoyed working with the companies that he had started. And so it was always this delicate balance of just trying to make sure that we kept things as normal as possible. And then if there was ever a health crisis, you know, he had his team here that could help him. And um, and we were comfortable with the team. You know, based on the things that I did find online, I felt like we were in great hands. and um, And that was just kind of how we dealt with it.
3: And you bring up a really great point, because like Lizette said, a lot of individuals who are diagnosed with myeloma are older, and so their kids are older. And when someone's diagnosed in their 30s and they have young kids, it's a whole different conversation in regards to the availability of their family or the interaction with their families.
1: Well, yeah, because, you know, with our kids being in elementary school, you know, they don't wash their hands. So, you know, our kids come home from school with little cooties all the time, and I'm like, look, you wash your hands. If they were sniffling, sneezing, coughing or whatever, I had to make sure that I kept them away from their dad because his immune system was so compromised. And so I I ended up learning a lot about things that had never crossed my mind before. And even to this day, when I'm in the grocery store and I see adults coughing and not covering their mouths, I get so angry because I'm like, you don't know who's around and who might have a compromised immune system because so many people are are sick and you, you just might not know it. And, and it's incredible how a simple cold for a myeloma patient can put them in a hospital. And so it was, it was interesting having to, you know, I was just basically learning on the job, trying to figure out how to balance everything for, for everyone. And Elijah was very inspiring. He didn't let the diagnosis really slow him down. You know, when he, was slowed down, I knew he was not really, really feeling well, because if he had an ounce of energy, he was going to work out. He was riding his bike. He loved coaching our boys and football and baseball and all of the stuff that they were doing. And even after we lost him, I felt like it was important for our boys to keep living and to keep doing the things based on the fact that he set an amazing example, doing the very, the very same things that uh, we were trying to do, just kind of push through some tough, tough situation and tough
3: news and, and make the best of it. And Elijah, he definitely was pushing through because he had founded the Tackle Myeloma Foundation after undergoing a stem cell transplant, right? He actually
1: um, founded the the foundation in 2006. So he was diagnosed in October of 05. He had his stem cell transplant in February of 2006. And that was when um, he decided he wanted to have the foundation. And, you know, I'll be really honest with you, the first year of having that nonprofit, I wasn't ready to have anything to do with it. I was completely still just kind of reeling from his diagnosis and just trying to juggle everything. And he bounced back very well from his stem cell transplant. So having him kind of like back to normal for a little while and not not in 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 a place where he was really unstable, I wanted to embrace that. And I didn't want to embrace it by being so busy running a nonprofit. And so I kind of let him and his board uh, do their thing, raising money and, and, and starting the different events. He had a, uh, he would do a celebrity poker tournament and a celebrity golf tournament and uh, do a lot of fundraising that way. And it was about a year or so later that I came on board and started to get more involved behind the scenes. But it was always incredible to me that despite what he'd been through, you know, he wanted to make sure that he helped other cancer patients. And I know where that came from. It it came from watching the kids around him who were also diagnosed with cancer, who were still being kids. And he said, you know, these kids have the same thing I do, you know, as far as having a, a cancer and they're in here receiving chemo and all kinds of Drugs and being poked and prodded, but they're still in the hallway playing. They're still trying to to live, and and he thought that that was just incredible. And so he just wanted to help them in any way he could. Now Elijah had you and your boys had you.
2: So where did you get your strength? Where did you get your support?
1: You know, like when you're a caregiver, or at least when I became a caregiver, I didn't really know how that was supposed to go or what that looked like. For me, I was a wife and a mom, and it's, you know, through sickness and in health, it's just what you do. And anyone who's a parent knows the kids come first. So as a woman and as a as a mom, as a wife, I just put myself on the back burner. I didn't really even think too much of it. What I do now, in hindsight, realize something that I inadvertently did that I feel like helped me tremendously was I actually had pockets of people and and groups that didn't know anything about my backstory. So this was way back before social media was really a big thing. And I know a lot of people are on Facebook now and very transparent on Facebook. They can almost use it as a, a counseling center. Well, I wasn't really like that. I had a blog that I would talk about what was going on with Eli so that if anyone had any questions about where he was, where we were, how we were doing, I would post there. But during a part of Eli's treatment, I was in school. None of my classmates knew what was going on at home. I was also taking a few fitness classes. Nobody in those classes knew what was going on. And what I realized in hindsight is that when I lost Eli, I had a an amazing circle of support through my friends and my family who were close to us. But, I also had a group of people that I could be around who were completely clueless, who I could go and work out around, and they wouldn't ask me, "Well, what's going on at home? Well, how's Eli doing and you know oh i'm so I'm sorry for your loss and in coping, I now realized that that was probably one of the best things that I did because it allowed me to have a little bit of separation when i I needed it, and it's one of those things that I talked to cancer caregivers about quite often because I feel like a lot of times when we're in the midst of it, we almost feel guilty. There's a lot of almost remorse because you can't do anything to help the person that you love. And so you end up putting yourself on the back burner, but that's not really smart because if you're not taking care of yourself, who's going to take care of you? You, know, you really do have to make sure that you do something just to maintain your sanity.
3: That's so true. And we were on another episode with a husband and wife, and the husband was diagnosed with leukemia, and the wife said basically the same thing, in that she had to find time for herself. And even though she would be very worried about her husband, she needed, in order for him to be okay, and in order for her to take care of him, there had to be energy put into herself in order for that to be done effectively. So that's a very strong point for caregivers. Yeah, well,
1: I just... I know for a fact when you hear the words that your loved one has cancer, and all of that angst and and worry that you end up immediately taking on, and you don't even really think about, you know, gosh, well, I don't, I don't want to not do this. I don't want to not, you know, I don't want to have to worry about this. It's immediately oh my gosh, what can I do? What do I need to do? Who do I need to talk to? What are the doctors doing? At least that's how it was for me. I mean, like I said, I I was a little pit bull on uh, Elijah's doctors and nurses. And they were incredible. They entertained me. They answered all my questions. and, And I still have a relationship with Elijah's oncologist to this day. And I'm appreciative of that. And oddly enough, a couple of days ago, I went to lunch. I was in the middle of taking a nonprofit management class. That's ironic. I'm taking this nonprofit. (laughs) And I had a classmate who was always so incredibly nice to me. He had no clue about what my backstory was. He was just always funny and cracking all of these jokes. And one of our last assignments in class was to do a SWOT analysis on our nonprofit. That SWOT for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. And unfortunately, a couple of days before I was supposed to present it, Elijah passed away. Now, remember, nobody in my class knew what was going on. And my instructor, she was a foreigner. And so we kind of had a little bit of a communication gap. And when I tried to explain to her what was going on at home, and I asked her if I could have some more time to do my presentation, she was like, yeah, I'll give you an extra day. And I knew and I knew she didn't understand exactly what was going on. But I did end up appreciating that because It made me do the assignment. So despite everything that was going on with me, you know, losing him and worrying about so much stuff, I was actually also redoing an assignment for a class. And so I ended up having to do the presentation, but I changed it where it wasn't my husband running the nonprofit. It was now the fact that I had to step in to take over because I'd lost him. And that was how my classmates learned That my husband had cancer and not only did he have cancer, but he actually passed away at the end of that semester. So when I reconnected with my classmate and we had lunch the other day and I was explaining to him everything that was going on, he was just blown away. And I told him, you know, I appreciated the fact that I would show up in class and you were so nice to me. You didn't know that my husband played football. You didn't know that my husband was ill. You just made me laugh. And everything was just a little bit of, a little bit of a break, the break that I needed in order to be normal for a few minutes out of the week and be able to go home and do what I needed to do. And I'll always, you know, have a big appreciation for for him and, and you know, everybody else that just kind of let me do my thing peacefully in order to cope during all of the things that we were going through. Did you get an A? Gosh, I think I, I did. I hope you got an A. <laughs> I don't even, you know, I'll be very honest with you. Now, that I would not have cared about at that point.
3: In an interview, you mentioned that the advice that you'd give to others is that they should find activities and events to be a part of. For anyone listening who is a caregiver who, who has that thought of, I feel, like you said, I have remorse because I should be doing this and feeling this and being completely there, but also... Also understanding that at the same time you yourself need to have your mind elsewhere to keep it all balanced. So what advice would you have for someone listening who's like, Kimberly, I hear you, but how do I actually do it? One thing that I would suggest doing is take a few minutes to remember the
1: things that you love. Remember the things that make you happy, whether it be gardening or whatever, whatever you would do, if you had a whole lot of downtime, because as a caregiver, you don't have a lot of downtime. So I would make a list of those things. And then maybe, gosh, Google is is such an amazing asset. You can look up different activities and different groups that do those things. You know, prime example. You know, I know that I did a lot of fitness classes. It adds up. I wouldn't necessarily uh, encourage people to do anything that takes on a whole lot of additional costs. But I would say, you know, look for the different kinds of groups that are available that inc- invite people out where it might not be any charge for it, like something through a library. A lot of times um, universities offer free courses for certain things that people might be interested in, perhaps even uh like go on Eventbrite, a lot of times people can type in things that are interesting to them and all kinds of activities that revolve around those very same uh, interests are right there free of charge. Google is your friend. I would encourage any and everyone to definitely do that just do some research and, and look for whatever it is you love and pursue that. Life is too short. Being a caregiver is stressful. It, it is a necessary thing. None of us are ever given a book on how to do it properly. To me, there's a lot of on-the-job training. There are a lot of decisions that you have to make that you wish you didn't have to make, a lot of decisions that you have to make that you're just completely unprepared for. But in order to get through it, you
3: definitely need some downtime. You need some
1: me time and don't feel bad about it. Absolutely.
3: You mentioned that Eli was diagnosed outside of the United States. Where was he diagnosed? What happened was He was traveling to Costa Rica, and
1: on the flight, he became ill. So when he got to Costa Rica, his friends called in a doctor. That doctor did blood work on him and discovered something was very wrong and said, you know what, you need to get back to the United States. So when he got back to the States, I scheduled for him to get in to see our family practice doctor. And in between, it was crazy how rapidly everything happened. He had an appointment. And that day that he was supposed to go see her, he basically collapsed. And I ended up not taking him to see her, but taking him to an emergency room. That emergency room stabilized him. They told him that he was severely dehydrated, but that something was still very wrong and that there wasn't really anything else they could do for him. There was one of those little uh, ER mini clinic kind of deals. So they actually had him picked up and transported to another hospital. And it was an emergency room doctor in that hospital that told him, you know what, I kind of recognize these symptoms. I'm supposed to be off from work, but I am going to stick around and wait for the results of these tests and and let you know. And unfortunately, he was right. It was multiple myeloma. And that's how we found out. We'd never heard of it. Of course, I thought it was melanoma. And that was how our journey with this blood cancer started
2: was he like you that you want to know all the information sometimes patients don't want to know everything you know what
1: i never got that vibe that he he didn't want to know i think he took comfort in knowing that i was going to find out and so he probably (laughs) really he you know i don't think he really had to to worry about it too much um you know, he knew who he had at home and and I wasn't going to uh let anything get by. And so we went into it just very, very hopeful and very open to whatever it was that we needed to do to make sure that that he could live as long as possible with it. And, and like I said earlier, you know, we could have lost him in 05. And so I was always grateful for the additional time that we had with him. And still, you know, there's a little piece of me that now encounters myeloma patients who've had the disease for years or, you know, even in hearing about all the new advancements that have been made. know, I'll always wonder, well, gosh, you know, if he if it had been caught sooner, would it have made a difference if he was still here? You know, would some of these advancements be able to help him? That part of the story makes me sad, but I take comfort in knowing that I can help other people who find themselves in the same shoes. I'm glad our sons are now out of high school and and grown and doing their own thing. And so, you know, I feel like I've done a relatively decent job in trying to maintain a little bit of normalcy for them about as much as you can have, you know, losing your father. I mean, he was he was a, a very powerful person in their life. I don't know. I had to had to kind of step in and take on both roles. And I hope I did a, a good job.
3: I'm sure you did. I did. (laughs) I'm sure you did, and are doing. (laughs) Yeah. You said you wanted to use this experience to help others. In doing so, you've spoken at many blood cancer conferences for us. Um, You spoke at our volunteer leadership conference. You participated in media opportunities to share your story surrounding Blood Cancer Awareness Month. You've been on satellite media tours, radio media tours. You've also written blogs for us. And you're also deeply involved with our North Texas chapter. How did you get involved or how were you introduced to LLS? So interestingly
1: enough, I was introduced to the LLS locally by a girlfriend of mine whose husband, not husband, her her brother had been diagnosed with leukemia. And she invited me to a big event that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society here does called the St. Valentine's Day Luncheon and Fashion Show. So I went with her probably about four years ago and after going a couple of times, I would see, you know, the staff and at one point someone just finally approached me and asked me if I would join the board. They enticed me because they had just added a new campaign to the Dallas market, the uh, Man Woman of the Year campaign. And so I came on board that year to help jumpstart that campaign and I've been involved pretty much ever since I've loved being involved with that. I've loved being involved with LLS and I've gotten a lot of people involved. My brother-in-law ran for Man of the Year and raised over sixty thousand dollars. Elijah's oncologist uh also he actually won Man of the Year. He beat my brother-in-law. <laughs> he raised over a hundred thousand dollars and I've had a few friends who've done the same. And I've got a friend who's uh involved with the campaign now that I'm I'm kind of helping get his his game plan going. So I love being involved. There's so much work that still needs to be done. And so being a part of it just means the world to me. And I love being able to do it at a to be able to do it at a local level, because I'd ha- I had done a lot of stuff before, but a lot of it wasn't actually here in Dallas. And so being involved here, I don't know, just it feels good to be able to help people in my backyard.
3: Absolutely. Before the diagnosis, you were extremely busy. And then after the diagnosis, you're busy in a different way. How are you able to balance it all?
1: First and foremost, I balance it all because my parents have helped me tremendously. This is an even crazier story. My parents who had been divorced 32 years, moved into my house after Eli passed away. And so my mom lived upstairs, my dad lived downstairs, and they helped me raise the boys. And so I will forever be grateful. For both of them uprooting themselves from Florida to move to Dallas, Texas to help their grandkids. You know, I'm an only child between my mom and dad and little Eli and Evan are their only grandchildren. And so they picked up their lives and came here to help me and they're both still here. And, um, you know, it allowed me to figure out how I was going to carry on without Elijah. And it also let me. Make sure that I reinforce to the boys the importance of not allowing the loss of their dad and my husband to be an excuse for them to not do anything that their dad really expected of them. You know, my husband was one of those guys that, you know, he wanted the boys to make straight A's and, you know, they were supposed to go to college and they had he had all of these ideas in his head for what he wanted the boys to accomplish. And I didn't want to let him down. And I didn't want the boys to look at me and feel like, you know, oh, gosh, need to be worried about our mom or, oh, gosh, you know, mom fell apart when dad left. And now we've got all this pressure to to do certain things in order to keep things going. I really did want our kids to keep being kids. And so because of the the support of, of friends and family, I was able to do that for them. And and I really tried to just set an example for how you can endure something that's painful and still, you know, you're basically making lemonade out of lemons. And so um that's how I've ended up here. And so our oldest one, he graduated from high school and he's in college. And the youngest one graduated from high school, didn't go to college, but it's OK because he got drafted by the New York Yankees. Wow! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and none of them were in football, right? <laughs> no, no football. Mom knows too much about football to ever allow that to And I love football. Don't get me wrong, because you know, in addition to all the other stuff I do for blood cancer, I actually co-host a sports talk radio show, and I love football. My husband was a linebacker. I love a big, solid, sound hit. I love tackle. <laughs> But I never wanted my kids to be on the receiving end of them. And so I'll watch it and, and I'll cheer on all my friends whose children are out there playing. You know, good luck with all they're doing. But I didn't want my kids playing football. Mm-mm. Well, we
2: are in New York. So,
1: yeah. go to the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We have to uh, take him down to, to spring training here pretty soon. So, yeah, that is awesome. Congratulations to him the St. Valentine's Day luncheon, they actually attended that with me. So that was wonderful. That was really, really special for me. We're really trying hard as an organization to focus
2: a lot of our energy on caregivers because it's so important.
1: They can be the game changer in a patient's treatment to be very honest. So
3: I think that's important. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and for sharing your story. And letting others know that, like them, caregiving requires you to learn as you go when someone you love receives a diagnosis. So we thank you for sharing the story of not only yourself, but your your two boys and your parents. And, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing to hear that the support is there and the role of a caregiver is so important. So we thank you for all that you do and continue to do. And the life that you're living, you know, post Elijah's passing,